0: Uh, please turn your Bibles to uh, two passages, if you would, this morning. One, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And then also uh, the book of Philippians, Philippians 2. and Luke, chapter 1, I want to read beginning there in verse 26. And if you would stand with me, if you would, in honor of God as we read his word together. Luke, chapter 1, verse 26. You may be seated, and I'll read now from Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, which also describes the miracle of the incarnation, perhaps does so from a slightly different perspective, more of a divine perspective. And we read this in Philippians chapter 2, beginning there in, we'll begin in verse 5. God has also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the miracle of Emmanuel, of God with us, and we pray this morning that we would Emulate your son Jesus. That we would be like Him. That you give us the means to be like Him through faith in Him. We pray that you would help us as we encourage one another to do so by, by pointing one another to your Word. We pray for those hurting this this week, as we as they think about loved ones who are no longer with them, or strange relationships, or just just some other hard things that are going on in their lives. I pray. For peace and for safety, the people who are here, the, the, your, your saints, we pray for you to strengthen the weak. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin this morning by talking about Christmas conflict, kind of talk a little bit about arguments that you might have, disagreements with, with other people around the Christmas season. In fact, I want to begin by giving you a Christmas conflict quiz I have uh, maybe like seven little areas. I had six first service, but after talking with some, I've added a seventh uh, conflict area here. And this Christmas quiz, I'm gonna I'm gonna say an area, and if you've had a a conflict with someone this Christmas season about that area, you have to give yourself a point. So you don't want a point. A point is a bad thing. But there's seven seven statements here, seven areas in which you can have disagreement or conflict and so uh, the maximum score is seven although someone first service told me that they scored a nine because they've had like multiple conflicts in some of these areas I said well I don't think what you need is more counseling I think you need math but um So here are the the seven areas. Give yourself a point if if this has been an issue you've had a Christmas conflict with this season. Number one, uh, an issue related to where you're going to celebrate Christmas. A where question. Maybe you want to be one place on Christmas Day, and you're married, and your spouse wants to be at a different place. Uh, I mean, she wants to be with you, but at a different place. Uh, Then give yourself a, a point there. I guess if it's she wants to be in a different two points, I suppose you get. But no, it's where it's an issue of where, give yourself a point. If you've had an argument about an issue of timing, an issue of timing, give yourself a point. Maybe there's some, some Christmas things that you want to do, like you want to have dinner a certain time and someone else wants to have dinner another time, and you've been talking to the in-laws, there's an issue of timing about when you're going to show up, when you're going to celebrate. Maybe you're going to open, someone wants to open presents at one time, someone else wants. So if you had a timing argument, you have to give yourself a point. If you've had an argument or a conflict over the menu, that's a third area you can give yourself a point on. Maybe uh, you want uh, turkey, someone else wants ham who's in the family, and so there's been an argument about the menu. I was talking to a, a person this, this past week, a friend, he's uh, Indian, and his wife is half Palestinian and half Brazilian, and so there are all sorts of culminary things conflicts going on there, at least potentially, and they, and they both like American food. So there's, there's all sorts of uh, things to choose from there. Maybe a uh, fourth, fourth area would be an area related to tradition. Maybe there's been an argument about some sort of tradition in the family, and you've, you've had to kind of deal with that this week. My wife comes from a family where it was a, it was a white Christmas family. The family would always watch white Christmas the week preceding uh, christmas I was more of a it 's a wonderful life family, and so we've we 've compromised on elf it 's kind of our you know, christmas Christmas movie maybe maybe you 've had a, a conflict about budget you know, kind of how much you 're going to spend and and uh, how much you 're going to allocate to different uh, different areas of the the family budget. So that'd be a fifth a fifth area. Or maybe a sixth area is gift selection for other people. You're going with someone to buy a gift for a, a third person, and there's, there's argument about what type of gift to get. Or, or maybe seventh, maybe there's an area of, of argument about whose turn it is to do certain Christmas things. Maybe you and your sibling take turns every year getting to open a certain present or put the star on the Christmas tree. Maybe there's an an argument in your family about turns. So tally up your score there, and, and if you have zero, zero points, congratulations. That's very exciting for you. Maybe you can listen to this sermon for a friend, and um, there'll be a sermon in a couple weeks online that maybe you can see that you can can deal with or or good self assessment. Um, if you scored uh, one or two, maybe even three. Um, you can listen to half the sermon, kind of there's two points, you can take notes for one and just kind of tune out for the second one because you basically got this down, but any more than that, maybe this is going to be a helpful message for you and you should take uh, careful notes here in all seriousness. Um, conflict, conflict is not an unusual thing, right? Conflict, disagreements, tensions in our, our families are not rare things. Paul, here in the book of Philippians, is dealing with conflict. He's dealing with conflict. We're looking at verses 5 through 11 this week and next, but let me just give you a little bit of context. We see some conflict taking place in Philippi, the people to whom Paul is writing, and he says, look, guys, I want you to complete my joy. This is verse 2 of chapter 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. I want you to be of one mind. And we see here there's kind of this hint of some disagreement We also see this later in the book of Philippians. He says, I want you to do nothing from selfish ambition, and there probably were some things being done from selfish ambition or conceit. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so Paul is concerned about the disagreements that exist in the church, and so he's encouraging them to practice humility. Humility means lowliness, considering others more important than yourselves. That's what Paul is exhorting them to do. Paul doesn't enjoy the presence of conflict, and and I feel the same way. It's discouraging to me to find conflict in, in my life because it's not just in Philippi, in the first century, that conflict existed, right? This same sort of conceited, self-interested, fueled conflict exists in my home, and it exists in your home and in your workplace, and sadly, even sometimes in the church. So I want us to look at what Paul puts forth as a solution here this idea of humility. And in fact, look at verse 5, we see his solution is even more specific. It's not just this general call to, hey, try to be humble. There's a more specific call he gives here in verse 5. And and what what does he tell them? He says, I want you to have this mind among yourselves. I want this this attitude to permeate the church, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I want you to be like Christ because you are in Christ. Now, there's a, a beautiful a beautiful passage that follows here in verses 5 through 11. Paul uses very elevated language as he describes what he wants them, who he wants them to be like in verses 5 through 11, as he describes who Jesus Christ is. In fact, some commentators as they look at this, some people as they study verses 5 through 11, believe this might have been an early hymn of the Christian church because of its, its elevated style in the Greek. And what I think we see here is something very important about the link between theology and, and how we live our lives. See, sometimes uh, Christians will say something like, well, I, I just want to be like Jesus. I don't want to worry a lot about theology. I don't want to worry a lot about deep study. I don't want to listen to a bunch of long, boring sermons. I just kind of want to get practical, and I, I want to just be like Jesus and, and do good things. And Paul as he tells people to be like Jesus, understands that for a person to be like Jesus, what needs to happen? They need to know who Jesus is. In other words, it's not just this vague, hey guys, be nice like Jesus is. He says, I want you to be like Jesus, and now let me tell you a little something about who Jesus is. And he goes into this beautiful passage that deals with the incarnation and the cross and Jesus' ultimate exaltation. It's a beautiful passage full of deep and rich theology. It's what Paul prescribes as a remedy to the conflict in Philippi, and it's what you and I need this morning as well as we come upon this Christmas week that will be full of potential Christmas conflicts and disagreements and selfishness. You see, the bottom line, and we're not going to get into all the passage this morning, we're going to talk more about it next week, but the bottom line is that Paul says, look, because of Christ's humility, you and I can pursue joy this Christmas by practicing humility. Because of Christ's humility, you and I have the ability to experience joy this Christmas as we practice humility. And so in verses six and seven, I want us to, to look at verses six and seven, we're going to see the model of humility, we're going to see a means by which we can be humble, and we're going to, to look at Christ's humility in his deity. Christ as God exercising humility. Let's see two things here. Number one, number one, Christ showed his humility by God, as God by not selfishly demanding what he deserved. That's the first thing I want you to think about with me as we think about practicing humility. Christ is a model of humility. Christ showed his humility as God by not selfishly demanding that which he deserved. Now, let's look more carefully at verse 6. What does he say? He says, I want you to have the same mind, the same attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, what does that mean when he says here that he was in the form of God? Well, it doesn't mean that he just kind of appeared to be God. It didn't mean that he wasn't God before. It means that Jesus Christ was fully God. It's who... He was and who he is. The essence of Jesus Christ has always been that he's God. So, for example, Colossians 1.15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the, the firstborn of all creation. John 1, verses 1 and 2 says that Jesus in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything that God the Father is, so is God the Son. The passage we looked at earlier Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, this is verse 1 of Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Everything that God the Father is, so is God the Son. There's no attribute that God the Father has that God the Son doesn't also have. He upholds the universe, says the writer of Hebrews, by the power of his word. Now, do you get the idea that Jesus Christ is extremely important? In fact, he's important Beyond our understanding of what importance is, it's hard for us to even grasp. We can't grasp the magnitude of his glory and his majesty and his prestige. Every attribute that God the Father had, has, does have, God the Son also has. It's not like Jesus is a a mini-God and God the Father is the big God. God the Son has all the attributes that God the Father has. Now, if that's true, and it is, what sort of rights and privileges does jesus christ deserve you and i know what privileges we deserve if you go into a restaurant you have certain expectations about how the the waiter is going to treat you you have certain expectations about the respect that you deserve as as a paying customer If you have employees, you have certain expectations about how they're going to to treat you. If you have children, you have certain expectations about how they are going to respond to you. I mean, after all, you're the person who who feeds them, who clothes them, who brings them into the world. And and so, this last week, um, I had a child who I felt didn't esteem me properly. And so... um, We went through this very long recitation of things that are great about Dad. You know uh, how Dad sustains my life. Uh, I continue to eat because Dad provides food and Mom provides food, and you know, just it was, um, it was, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. Um, I'm sure this child just really loved it. No, we we were. It was, uh, it was, it was humorous, but I I think made the point. As a father, uh, I'm, I'm. I deserve some esteem, and it's it's for the good of that child that they recognize that dad and mom deserve respect. Now, if it's true that you and I at, at times deserve respect, we have certain privileges that are ours in different facets of our life, if that's true for you and me, how much more true is that for God the Son? What sort of glory is due to the one who upholds the entire universe by the power of his word? How much glory is due to the one who sustains the universe and brings the universe into creation through the power of his word? How much glory is the one for whom the universe was created? How much glory is that person due? All of it, right? It says he was in the form of God. But then look at the last half of verse 6. He's in the form of God, so he's due all the prestige and honor and glory that God is due. But it says he didn't count equality with God a, a thing to be grasped. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about it this way. You and I live in a world in which we understand what is due us and we act accordingly. Jesus lived in such a world, and in, in uh, Matthew chapter 23, he's talking about the religious leaders. He says, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, and they lay these burdens on people's shoulders. And But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long, and they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. In other words, the religious leaders love those external things that help others recognize who they are and give them the esteem that these religious leaders feel that they deserve. And what is true in Jesus' day is true in our day as well, right? As you advance in a company, there are certain privileges that are yours and, and maybe you work for someone and that person exercises those privileges. It's, it's their right to exercise those privileges. Or maybe, again, as a parent, there are privileges that are yours and you exercise those rights. And and the idea of someone not exercising their rights to the privileges that are, that are due them is very shocking to us. And yet, what happens here? It says that, that Jesus didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And, and this is a shocking thing to us, again, because we live in a world where everyone seizes all the, the prestige and the honor and the rights that are theirs. But Christ does this. It says he didn't count as a thing to be grasped. It means that he didn't demand what was his due. Christ, bottom line, refused to act selfishly there's there's a tension here as as i think about that we know that it's right for god to love himself right it's right god is the most supreme being in all the universe and it's right for him to acknowledge that it'd be deceit dishonesty if god didn't say that he was the greatest being in the universe and to love himself We know that his glory is is the best thing in all the universe. And yet, even in his glory, this is the thing that I've struggled with this week, to think about him not grasping that which was his due. It says, even in his glory, one of God's attributes is that he acts for the benefit of others at his own expense. Do you see that? Even God, who is due all the glory in the universe, the one for whom the universe came into existence, even God is a sacrificial God. In other words, one of the attributes of a divine being is not grasping, but giving. That's humility. It's lowliness. It's not demanding the glory that's due them. It's sacrificing for the benefits of others. And I would argue it's very hard for you and I to grasp biblical humility, and yet it's absolutely essential for us to understand this concept for there to be peace in our homes, in the workplace, for us to be people of peace. Sometimes when you and I think about humility, we think about humility in the sense that it means not being really prideful. So for example, we think of humility being rightly assessing our own skills and not being prideful. We're being humble. So for example, when I was in high school, there was a big talent show that our high school put on and And I wanted to participate in this talent show. You know, when you're in high school, (laughs) um, high schoolers, you can argue with me. Maybe maybe this isn't true for you. But when I was in high school back in the day, um, I didn't necessarily know who I was. I didn't know my strengths and weaknesses. And I I thought maybe one of my strengths is in comedy. Maybe I would just be a really funny storyteller, and so I listened to some old, this was, this was before all the controversy, but I listened to some old Bill Cosby uh, routines, and I thought, I'm going to do a Bill Cosby routine, so I, I went and I auditioned for this Bill Cosby routine, and even as I was auditioning for the talent show, I'm thinking in my head, huh, I am not very good at this. Uh, surprisingly, very poor at this. And so I talked to the teacher afterwards and my friends and they confirmed, yeah, this is not your thing. And so we did not do the talent show, right? Now, you could say, well, that's humility. That's really recognizing your strengths and and weaknesses. And and I suppose there's an element of humility in that. But but humility, brothers and sisters, what I want you to see is humility goes much, much deeper than that. It's not just saying I'm going to rightly assess what my abilities are and, and act in accordance with that. What humility is, is saying, okay, I know what is unarguably due me and I'm not going to demand it. Humility is saying, okay, I, I, I know that I deserve something and yet I'm willing to suffer wrong. You know, I know that I have the, the right to the corner office and I'm not going to demand it. I, I know that it's my turn on the the iPod or the the Wii or the Xbox or whatever, the computer, whatever it is. I know it's my turn. My sibling has had it for 20 minutes. Mom said 20 minutes, and then it was my turn. It's now unarguably my turn. And what humility is, says, okay, I'm not going to demand that which I know is my due. Humility is going to say, okay, I know that my spouse here, we're in this, this disagreement, and I, and I truly believe that that I'm in the right here, and so obviously it's it's my right to have this person come and pursue me and ask for my forgiveness. And humility says, I'm not going to demand it. And brothers and sisters, what I want to tell you this morning is, unless that is your model, unless that is your attitude, you are not going to be able to avoid conflict. Unless you say, okay, I'm going to model the humility that Christ has and not demand that which is my due, unless you turn that switch and say, okay, I'm not going to demand that which is my due, conflict is going to be inevitable. That's our model. That's our model, the humility of Christ. If I'm truly humble, it means I don't demand what I truly think I deserve. I don't demand that which is my due. I don't don't count those things as things to be grasped, but things to be given. And if Jesus Christ, God himself can give up what is his due, certainly you and I can as well, right? On the little things. So that's our model. That's our model. Jesus Christ is is our model. And you say, okay, well, Daniel, that's kind of helpful. So now I have this, this model of what humility looks like, but that only helps me so much. Because this week, there's going to come that situation where intellectually I can know what I'm supposed to do but in that in that moment it, it's so so difficult and so I, I can know that the right thing to do when I'm in a conflict is to prefer the other person and yet that time comes and it's so hard to prefer the other person and so even though I have this model it's, it's not really helpful because I don't feel like I have the means to implement it's like I can look at a an NBA player and and see a model of how to to dunk a basketball but that doesn't mean I have the means to be able to do so well, here's here's the neat thing. We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. But not only is Jesus Christ our, our model, but he's our means. And here's the second thing that I want you to see as we think about humility. Christ showed his humility as God by selfless, selflessly choosing to become a man. He emptied himself, says Paul, by taking the form of a servant being born in likeness of man. Now, now what does it mean to, be, to empty himself? Some have suggested, well, what does it mean to be not fully God any longer. We know that's not right based on what we've read already this morning. In fact, what I think it means is to, to make himself nothing, to, to lower himself, to say, okay, I'm going to become a servant. That's what he says in the rest of the passage. He never ceased being fully God, but he, he emptied himself. He, he, he was, uh, shows here the, the, the extent of his self-renunciation All the humiliation that followed is defined by him emptying himself. He takes the form of a servant. He was in the form of God. Now he continues to be in the form of God. He continues in his deity, but he also now is fully man. It's the miracle of the incarnation that we've read about already this morning. John one fourteen the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side. He has made Him known. As we think about the humility of Christ, we see that we needed not just a model, not just this intellectual, okay, now I, now I see what it looks like, but we needed the means by which we could become humble how does Christ becoming human help us in that? A couple thoughts. One, it means that our sins have been paid for. By Jesus Christ becoming a human being in His humility, it means that our sins have been paid for. Hebrews 2 Verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And this is Hebrews 2.17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers In every respect, he had to become fully man so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You and I could not have hope of having our sins removed, our sins of pride, our sins of self-sufficiency, apart from Jesus Christ humbling himself and becoming man he became man so that we could have a new nature. 2 Corinthians five twenty one we looked at earlier this year. It says, for our sake he made him, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We needed this divine exchange to take place where Jesus Christ took my sin and, and took it on himself. And then not only did he take away my sin, but I needed God's righteousness. And so he took away my sin and then he gave me his own righteousness. And now... I have the ability to be in a relationship with God. Now, in Christ, I have the ability to be humble, to live like him, to be in him, as Paul says here in this passage. In other words, in other words, Jesus Christ did what only he could do so that we could have a relationship with God. We had to have him do it. This type of humility does not come naturally to us, right? We need not just a a model of humility, but we need the means by which we can practice this type of humility. So think about this type of humility. Let let me read a little bit beyond this this passage and and see where Paul goes with this. It says he was born in the likeness of men. Then verse verse 8 And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Apart from God's divine intervention in our life, We cannot be humble. And whenever you have a relationship in which people are committed to their own self-interest, conflict is inevitable. And it's interesting, I think conflict becomes, we become more aware of conflict perhaps, or maybe there's greater conflict, at special times like Christmas, because we, we come into a, a time of the year or a day of the year with, with, with our individual expectations as to what that day is going to look like and, and what other people are going to do to make this day like we envisioned, or or maybe even we we go into this day thinking, okay, I'm gonna do this for this person that I love, and as I do this, they're going to respond in a certain way. And so as we come into this this time, this this week, we have expectations about how conversations are going to go and, and travel is going to go and, and people haven't seen in a while how those conversations are going to go. And so there's a lot of expectations. There's a lot of interest that we have in this week going well. And on the one hand, that can mean a lot of conflict, a lot of pressure. But on the other hand, it, it can be a great window into our soul by which God uses a very stressful week to reveal what is is true or not true of, of our hearts. Are we humble people? Are we a people who look to Jesus Christ as the model of what humility is to, to be like, to look at Jesus Christ as a gay, okay, as Jesus Christ refused to grasp equality with God, as Jesus Christ refused to demand the rights that were, that were his as creator of the universe, as he refused to do that, I'm going to be a person who refuses to demand the things that that I think that I'm due. And certainly I'm going to be a person who refuses to demand the things that I just want. And how am I going to do that? I'm going to do that through the gospel. I'm going to do that by believing in Jesus Christ, by placing my trust in him for eternal life and saying, Father, God, I I cannot do these things on my own. I cannot have a relationship with you based upon my own righteousness. I, I need the righteousness that comes through faith in your son, Jesus. And for those of us who are believers, we say, God, I'm going to walk by faith now in humility. Not something that I can do on my own, but something that I can do only through the strength of your son, Jesus, working through me. Jesus Christ is both our our model of humility and the means by which we can practice this type of humility. It's a humility that doesn't come to us naturally, it's so a humility that only can come to us supernaturally. And as you partake of the Lord's Supper this, this morning, I would encourage you to be, to be thinking about what we've talked about in terms of humility. Asking God to reveal in you how you need to further emulate the humility of one who gave up his life for us. The Lord's Supper points to his, to his body broken for us, the new covenant in his blood, Symbols of Christ's humility. Ask God to be revealing how he can make you the humble person that he desires you to be in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that. We ask that you would help us just think very carefully about conflict in our lives, about disagreements, about areas where there isn't peace. We pray that we would be people who pursue peace through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Modeling his humility. Through the means of the gospel, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.